We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Let's talk ice wine. Niagara is preparing to celebrate its annual ice wine harvest from January 12th through Niagara, or sorry, through January 28th. Niagara Wine Country will stage glitzy galas, wine culinary touring programs at uh, different wineries and uh, a Niagara on the Lake Street Festival, just to name a few. And if you know the area at all, this is a great annual event. And if you've never discovered it, it might be the year. Dorian Anderson is with us, Executive Director of Niagara Grape and Wine Festival and here now. Dorian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dorian, to those who may never have been or don't know anything about it, uh, describe the uh, the wine festival and what it's all about. So the Ice Wine Festival is a celebration of winter and all things cool here in Niagara. Um, the Ice Wine uh, sector is actually a really interesting one and unique to Canada. There's only a couple other places in the world that produce ice wine, but we are the world's leader in ice wine production, believe it or not. Um, so a little over 30 years ago, the um, the industry started making ice wine with uh, grapes that hang on the vines until the temperature hits minus eight degrees, which concentrates all of the delicious juices in the grapes, makes them nice and sweet and creates a beautiful, special wine product. So we thought since it was the wine, uh, actually Inniskillen had the wine that put us on the international map, and it was an ice mm-hmm. wine, that we better throw a big party to celebrate it. So how uh, how much would a winery dedicate to leaving uh, on the vine, or is it a specific type of grape that does this every year, so you grow this every year specifically for this purpose, or is it just a case of, you know, every year, how much do I want to leave to try to do this? Yeah, I think it's a year-to-year decision. Um, over the past 10 years, I would say, winemakers have really experimented a lot with different varietals. So early in the early days, it used to be primarily uh, Vidal was the wine that was used for ice wine because it has a bit of a thicker skin and it can hold up to the weather really well. But then we have all these other great varietals that we grow here. So Riesling is very popular. Cabernet Franc is a red wine that is used for ice wine. But I've seen Gewurztraminers and Chardonnays and Cab Sauvignon. Like it almost is sort of anything that grows in Niagara. We've got some pretty proactive and innovative winemakers that want to see um, what they can turn into ice wine. So and as far as year to year, I think it depends on the harvest and it depends on, you know, the seasons. Um, ex- it's a great export market for the wine industry here. Um, so I think, you know, it depends on the winemaker to, to make that decision every year. And what is this year like? Well, this year the grapes are still hanging. So um, we, I actually spoke with uh, Augusta, the winemaker or the vineyard manager at Redstone yesterday. We haven't had cold enough temperatures yet to um, to mm. pick ice wine for this year, but they're thinking actually maybe Sunday will be the day that it's going to get cold enough to pick. So there are quite a few wineries. If you actually drive by vineyards and you see nets still hanging on the posts, mm. they're holding the grapes. Um, some of them fall even off the vine. But those nets hold the grapes until they can freeze, uh, and then the machines go through. Most of it's machine harvested, and they'll go through usually in one night or a weekend and pick everything. Yeah, it's interesting seeing the lights in the field and such. Um, So uh, talk a bit more about the festival and what it entails. Sure, I'd love to. So the Ice Wine Festival is three weekends in January. So it starts this Friday the 12th. And it kicks off with the first day of the Ice Wine Discovery Pass. So that's a self-guided passport tour. We have 35 wineries in Niagara participating. So they all select their wine, uh, Ice Wine of the Year that they want to be featuring. And they work with the local chef to create a food pairing that goes with it. Uh, And unlike what most people think that everything with Ice Wine is sweet, sometimes the best pairings are savory or spicy food pairings. So there's a lot of really big range of food options to try. So a Discovery Pass has either three or six of these pairings included, and you get to sort of pick where you'd like to visit. Um, So that kicks off on Friday. uh, And then those passes are available throughout the rest of the month, and they can be used any of the weekend days throughout January. And then on Saturday night is our big launch party. So we have the Cool as Ice Gala held at the amazing Niagara Parks Power Station down in Niagara Falls. Um, oh, and that's amazing. By Falls View. Yeah. Have you been there before? Yeah, I have. It's a great place to tour. Oh, it's unbelievable. I've been waiting since I was a kid to get in the, those doors. So as soon as they had it open, yeah. I, I called up our friends at the parks and said, I want to throw a party. 
Um, and it's amazing. We get this sort of exclusive after hours access to the space and the current light show goes on and it's just amazing cool. food and wine and entertainment. Yeah. It's an awesome night. Uh, and then the discovery so, uh, I mentioned continues oh, oh. to the rest of the month. Niagara on the Lake hosts um, their uh, street festival in historic old Niagara on the Lake on Saturdays and Sundays, the last two weekends in January as well. So all in all throughout the month, you would have an opportunity, I would say, to try close to 100 different ice wines through the different events, as well as sparkling and other sort of celebrated wines as well. Um, and just really kind of get outside and feel Canadian. And, and how is this growing? We've only got a few seconds left, Dorian. How is this growing over the years? Uh, well, the, the gala specifically, this, this event brings in probably fifteen to 25,000 people every year, the whole Ice Wine series. And we're seeing more and more mm. Americans coming and more people from outside of the region making this sort of their winter destination event because the events themselves are fantastic, but the wines are something unusual that people don't try very often. And this gives them a great chance to try it in the right setting with the right food pairings uh, and a lot of different options all in the same place. Website to find out more, Dorian. NiagaraWineFestival.com, and you can follow us on any social channel at, at Niagara Wine Fest. All right, the Niagara Ice Wine Festival, January 12th through the 28th, uh, and you can find out more at NiagaraWineFestival.com. Dorian, good luck this year. Have fun. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. The Freeland, how come the IRDC is not a terrorist group? Why is your government supporting Islamo Nazis? You pushed into me. You bumped I was just scrubbing I've got my credentials here and you just bumped into me. So Police, you're under arrest. What is your name and your badge? Why am I under arrest? That is Rebel News personality David Menzies arrested on Monday for allegedly, allegedly, uh, allegedly assaulting a police officer. However, uh, once things settled down and uh, they did what they had to do and cuff him and get him out of there, uh, there were no charges laid and he was released. He was trying to ask Finance Minister Christy Freeland questions as she was on her way into a building and i suggest you go watch the video it's everywhere on social media and uh you know although i'm, I'm not necessarily into uh gotcha kind of politics i do not believe this person was doing anything wrong and I think what makes this even more fascinating is this in the wake of watching pro-Palestinian protesters who are doing everything from stopping the mayor of Toronto's uh, skate at City Hall to uh, harassing people in shopping malls, stopping traffic at intersections and on and off ramps at major highways and Jewish neighborhoods, and not to mention verbally assaulting police officers and threatening them. That does not get you arrested. But doing what David Menzies did, which was trying to get a word out of Christia Freeland, uh, that does get you arrested. And these people aren't security detail. It's easy to do. You got a couple of people and you just sort of surround the minister and you walk her in. Instead, it was almost like they set a pick on this guy. And then when he bumped into the police or the, C or the, uh, the security, I don't know who it was, uh, then all of a sudden, boom, you're immediately arrested. It was, it, it's, it, it's way over the top. And again, incredibly inconsistent with what we have been seeing, uh, in regard to protesters and other situations. Let's bring in Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun, and is here now. Joe, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, doing great. Um, you know, it's, it's, you've described it well. I mean, it's a terrible situation that happened, and it affects the whole country, because what it's channeling is that you're not allowed to ask the government, the Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, a question without a thug, you know, standing in front of you when you can't see him, and then turn around and accuse you of assaulting the police and then handcuffing him. This is a guy who's had two hip replacements. He's over 60 years old, thrown in the back of a car. He thought they were, they took him behind a school. And he thought they were going to beat him up back there. This is a vet. This is a veteran journalist, David Mann. Yeah. He's been around a long time. They actually said the guys in the car were actually really good guys. They let him go. They knew that this was nonsense, but this is a very serious thing that happened. It's, it's a great story, but, 
it's a real metaphor or uh, indicator of where we're at in this country. Well, and you know, the this is one thing, Joe. And what happened with uh, the deputy prime minister and this person? That's one issue. What is so bizarre about it is it's so inconsistent with everything else we have seen. You know, here's a guy asking a question, and you know, gets a pick set on him and bumps into a, a security person and gets arrested. Meanwhile, we're seeing protesters in the streets stopping traffic, stopping a uh intimidating people and even threatening police officers and nothing happens this is one extreme to the other yeah it's a good point i mean basically what's happened is you've got people targeting jews right in toronto every day for the last 80 plus days and i've written about it ad nauseum over and over and over again we've had a deli fire bomb we've had restaurants you know that have been hit with graffiti and and lots of intimidation many other things you've heard them all um, and yet you say, well, why is it happening? Well, it's happening because leadership at the top, Prime minister's office and the mayor's office in Toronto, they, they want to play in down the middle. And somehow there's some sort of an e- equality between Hamas, which is a banned terror group, and the country of Israel, the state of Israel. There is no moral equivalent. Israel is Canada's ally. The other group, Hamas, is a banned terror group. And so you, you can support Hamas if you want, and you can support terror, and people do that. And you can certainly go and protest if you don't like something that Israel's doing. There's nothing wrong with going outside of the Israeli consulate as long as you're not uh, on the road. Just stay on the sidewalk or go to City Hall or Queen's Park or Parliament Hill. But the minute you start going to people's homes or in their businesses, yeah. or, you know, and, and I've written about people that have been assaulted, it's really, really awful. The Jewish people haven't done any of this. They haven't provoked any of this. There's been one woman that was charged. She lost her head. But they were doing the same things to her right before that. But there was nobody that complained. So, yeah, we've got an ugly situation. Uh, obviously, the prime minister and all that crowd are counting the votes. You know, when the election does come, you know it's going to be close. It's not going to be what the polls say. It's going to be a photo finish. And they know that. And they're starting to count votes. But what they don't seem to understand is that we still have freedom here. And also, if they think that they're going to get Muslim votes, you know, because of supporting a terror group, they're going to be mistaken there. Because I live in a Muslim section of, of, you know, of the GTA. I have lots of friends. My son has lots of friends. And they all don't like Hamas. They don't like what happened on October 7th. So somebody's yeah. reading this wrong, unless I'm reading it wrong. I just don't think so. I think I think we got to get back to freedom. Now, uh just want to say one more thing about Menzoid. You know, he. some people love him, some people don't love him. But I've known him a long time. He's a good journalist, and he would never hurt anybody. He's a good, good guy. Christian Freeland doesn't have to talk to him, but they don't have to hurt him. This happened to Menzoid uh, during the pandemic. He was actually roughed up even worse than that. And he says it's by the same guy. If that's the case, there should be an investigation into this, Scott, because it tells me that, you know, the potential targeting of him there. They saw him there. They knew he'd be there. Yeah. And, no, it's uh, it, it. It almost like it almost looks, Joe, like it was premeditated. Like here he comes. Uh, you see the one girl go to the left. He goes to the right, and boom, sets a pick on the guy, and he bangs into him. I mean, it looked so orchestrated. You know, the uh, Christian Freeland is an MP from Toronto. I, I've written about how they had a a food uh, bank in a church on her street and different things that she's done, her speeding tickets and different things. I, I, we write about those things. Does that mean that I'm going to get beat up if I, if I approach her, you know, I'm in, I'm the same age group as Menzoid and, you know, we're banged up. We've been out in the field for 40 years. So you, you take a 35 year old, 240 pound muscled cop who picks you up with three friends and throws you against the wall presses your chest up against the wall for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Take that out on no the fun. terrorists, you know, yeah. the, the actual criminals, not on the journalists. And, uh, you know, the other irony of this whole thing is that a lot of people that don't like rebels, they're forced to cover it, but they've had more than 10 million hits on this around the world, including from Elon Musk. So, you know, the mainstream media has got to start paying attention and they are paying attention. You're covering it. The sad part is, you know, yeah. And the sad part is, 
And the, and the sad part is because of lack of leadership. And I put the premier in here too, as well, Joe, oh, the premier sure, and, sure. and, and, and the prime minister and the police are left to do the dirty work. And, and here we have, I mean, they, they should not be put in this position. Joe, I got to let you go. We're out of time. Thank you for yours as always. Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun. You can find out more there. Thanks, Joe. Thank you very much. Take care now. All right. You remember, it wasn't that long ago where, you know, we sat down at uh, Gore Park and lit the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and finished off uh, the 2023 edition of the CHML Children's Fund. And to talk more about uh, goals we've hit and where we are and everything that uh, happened to get us there, Olivia Mackay is with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund. And here now, Olivia, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Scott. Hope you're doing well. So far, so good. So end of the year, you get to crunch all the numbers, add it all up and see where we are with the CHML Children's Fund. How does this uh, past year, 2023, look? Yeah, we are basically on par from last year. We're just slightly down, but not too uh, dramatic. We were able to raise over 148000 Uh We donated to 40 charities. So that was, I believe, six more than last year. And we donated over 135000 to those charities. I already have another four lined up for our January meeting, another two in the waiting for February. So, you know, money is constantly going out to these charities uh, every month. Uh, on top of that, we donated to 26 uh, charities for toys, and it was thousands and thousands of toys. I was picking up toys um, basically up until last week. So mm. I went out with my family on December 23rd to don- uh, to pick up toys over the break, and then I did a, my last fire haul last Thursday. So we've got some toys in the building here that some charities are going to come in uh, to get toys for the rest of the year for birthdays and special occasions. Um well, I think we did very, very well. We had our golf tournament, which raised over $20,000 that helped us. And we also had March Padness last year, which helped raise over $8,500 in cash donations and over $8,000 in product donations. And that went all to Essential Aid. And many don't realize this is more than just the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope, that this does run 12 months of the year. There's fundraising going on and, and stuff going out all, all through the year. Yeah, so the Christmas Tree of Hope helps us prepare for the next year, um, the upcoming year and the donations that will go out. You know, we, we get already donation requests in for camps, um, for any um, projects that uh, kids need help with, their sports, their music, funding for schools, funding for food, especially a big thing is over March break, you know, you get that big drive for food over Christmas and then it kind of dwindles out. So we'll get those requests in to help kids over the March break have food. Um, And, you know, we're always looking for funding, always looking for the help because the need is there and the requests are coming in. And as you pointed out, uh, obviously a, a weird uh, few years we've been through with a you know a post-pandemic world and such. And obviously over the holidays this year, a lot of people really feeling the pinch. And obviously that's reflected in what you're seeing. Yeah, and the requests, like I said, we had we were able to donate to six additional charities. Out of those six, we only had two new ones, but we had ones coming back who haven't been um, asking for mm. funding since 2019. So you had those four that haven't got funding for a few years because they weren't able to do their Christmas parties. And now that had come up and they needed that help this year. And also uh, a staff that does all of this, 12 months of the year, you meet regularly, and these are all volunteer positions. No one gets paid uh, through this. Yeah, so we're not government funded. There are no salaries that go out, so that is why the fund is sustainable. Um, You know, we do have expenses such as our accounting, which is has to be done for the government, but everything is done volunteer. So all the time that is put into this is volunteer hours and all our board members are staff members. How do you decide where the where the money goes, where the toys go, the charities to pick? How do you decide that? So um, charities will seek us out. So we don't seek any charities out. Um, and then they'll apply to us and they have to meet the criteria. So we do fund charities in the Hamilton and Burlington communities. And it just has to meet our uh, mandate, you know, the necessities of life, uh, underprivileged children's, their needs. We don't fund any brick or mortar Um any request like that, but any request where it's, you know, you need food on the table. Yeah. The kid needs, a child needs to be part of a football team and they need help with their equipment. I always say anything that helps a kid be a kid and that they don't have to worry about adult issues. 
There you go. All right. And I guess March Padness, the next big event coming up. Yes. Yeah, so we'll do March Padness um, in association with Essential Aid. And we raise funding uh, to bring awareness for menstrual products as well as personal hygiene. It was one thing that um, started after I it started after I had a miscarriage and I just knew what was needed and how people need it, these kind of products and now how they actually have to decide that is it is it going to be shampoo or pads or am I going to eat? And that was the one thing that really touched me when the charity had said to me that they have to put these personal hygiene products down in order to feed their family. And I was like, that's mm. not right because these are their essential needs. So I started this and we're going into our fifth year and uh, looking forward to it. Good for you, Olivia. Congratulations. You're amazing, honestly. Thank you. Uh, it's amazing how much you put behind this venture and have for years and years. Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund. Hit the website, 900CHML.com. All the details on how you can help us help the kids. Olivia, thanks so much for the time. Good luck in the next year. Thank you, Scott. You know, we were talking about this uh, last week or earlier on in the week. I can't remember. Anyway, it's all just such a, you know, it's all a blur. Anyway, uh, about being in a recession. And we've been talking about it forever, it appears. Like, we've been talking about it for a couple of years. And we're not really technically in it because it's two quarters of negative growth in a row. But we're right on the edge. Productivity's down. Our GDP is down. Everything's down. We're not we're not moving up in any way. Um, so everybody keeps saying, well, technically, we're not in a recession. Well, I don't think Canadians care about that. To them, it feels like it because they're feeling a loss of hope. And uh, Polara Strategic Insights has come out with their annual economic outlook for 2024. And a lot of us are carrying that same pessimism from last year uh, into next as uh, 82% uh, believe that if we're not in a, re a recession, it certainly feels like it. Let's bring in Dan Arnold, a chief strategy officer with Polara and with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah. Yeah. Good afternoon. Sometimes a uh, new year brings in optimism and such. Not seeing it so much here, Dan? Not so much. I mean, uh, as you said, you've got eight in 10 people who feel like things aren't going great, whether it's technically a recession or not. It feels pretty cruddy out there. And then when we ask them, is next year going to be better? Uh, majority of people say it's going to be worse than last year. So things aren't great and people are expecting it to get worse next year. So not a great overall outlook right now across the country. Uh, interesting because we have heard that, uh, like obviously Bank of Canada has held rates steady. We are hearing, uh, certainly in the U.S. that they could see up to three interest rate, uh, uh, reductions, even if it's just a quarter of a point each time. Um, some saying that still could happen here. So things may get better economically or at least from a stats point of view, uh, for next year, but that doesn't seem to be translating into, uh, our, our psyche yet. Yeah, and I think, look, if that happens, I think that will change the numbers next year when we run this poll again. Um, and I think interest rate cuts would be really big in that, if that too. There's a huge divide right now between the level of optimism among people who own a house and don't have to deal with the mortgage, so they've paid it down, compared to people who own a house and are dealing with their mortgage. Um, we asked homeowner, we asked people, like, what are the two words you'd use to describe your personal finances? And among homeowners, the most common answers are confident, calm. Among people who still have a mortgage, uh, top two words are worried and upset. And same thing for renters, worried and upset. So I do think if uh, interest rates go down, uh, that'll take some pressure off people who have variable mor rate mortgages or people who are renewing their mortgage. And I think that will lead to a better outlook probably next year. But, you know, until people see it, uh, you know, they're not going to uh, count any kind of uh, rate hikes before they happen. Also, when even we're talking about uh, stability for rates or even a slight deduction, we're certainly not going back to where we are, where we were, sorry, in a pandemic world. Are Canadians realizing that? Yeah, I think that's the, the issue here. I mean, even though in, the rate of inflation is lower now than it was last year, people don't really feel any better because, no. you know, even if prices only went up, you know, 3% this year, uh, they're still a lot more than they were a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, bacon's still expensive and eggs are still expensive and everything you buy in the grocery cart is still expensive. Uh, and I think people are still feeling that as a result of things. So you know, I don't think anything's going to get cheaper next year. I don't think... Um, you know, suddenly everyone's going to have a house in this country at an affordable rate. Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, I think people are probably looking ahead and assuming that will be the case, which is why we don't see a lot of people thinking things are going to get better next year. We've only got 8% of people who think that they're actually going to get ahead next year compared to where they are now.
Uh, obviously, growth is down across the country, uh, GDP, that sort of thing. But that gets into the political weeds. Do Canadians necessarily pay attention to that or just the fact that every time they go out, it's costing them more than what they're bringing in? Yeah, I think that's kind of comes back to that, that question on the recession there that we talked about at the top. Um, you know, there's an economist definition of recession, but most people right. don't know like what GDP growth even is, or if we've got negative GDP growth and what that even means to their lives. I think, you know, you just sort of people look at the economy and they say, look, it's it's expensive, things are tough. I see other people that are having a tough time. So I don't think things are going great. And that's why you got 82% who say we're in a recession right now. And um you know, I think it's really more of a gut uh, feeling and more a status recession being more a state of mind, I think, than an economist definition of uh, the term. Many thought when we were, um, you know, down in a pandemic and nothing was moving, that once things opened up, it would be the roaring 20s. And I guess it was for a, a brief period. How has a pandemic before all of this changed this, do you think? Yeah, and I really do think that's that's why we see this level of pessimism out there right now. I mean, Polaris done some other polling recently just around, you know, optimism for the future and the next generation. And, you know, we're just seeing very much record low levels of optimism on a lot of different questions. And I do think it's a case of, you know, we all spent two or three years following the rules and making sacrifices and doing everything that we were asked to do. And I think there had been that expectation that there'd be this great D-Day moment and parades and boom times afterwards. And, you know, as you said, roaring 20s and that things would be great afterwards. And like things are not that great right now for most people. Mm. So I think that's just the frustration of multiple years of pandemic now into multiple years of inflation. It just builds on it. And when you have, you know, four or five years in a row, they're just not great years. Um, you know, people start to feel the pressure, the pressure of that and the stress of that and the frustration builds and that, you know, creates a lot of, um, you know, bad feelings out there. And, you know, I think a lot of politicians are probably wearing that right now across the Western world. Dan Arnold with us, Chief Strategy Officer with Polara. How uh, we feel about getting into the next year and the economic uh, outlook for 2024. Dan, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. Hopefully better news next year. Yes, we will. Let's keep our, we should have ended with more hope. And, and you did say that towards the, uh, uh, earlier on that, uh, you know, maybe next year things might be a bit brighter for us. Thank you, Dan. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Can people increase their overall happiness by committing a small daily act of joy? It's a question researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, thought to answer, and they partnered with a documentary filmmaker to create an accompanying social impact campaign. The film, Mission, Joy, Finding Happiness in Troubled Times, examined the friendship between the Dalai Lama and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu and their ability to find lightness even through the dark. So to find more about all of that, Emiliana Simon-Thomas with us, PhD, Science Director, greater uh, the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Bar uh, Berkeley. And here now, Emily, Emily Anna, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Glad to be here. Thank you, Scott. So uh, we just had a guest on and they were talking about a recent poll, uh, polling Canadians in regard to optimism heading into the new year. And like 82% were concerned about money issues and recession. It wasn't the most positive thing. Uh, but can small acts of joy or happiness change all of that? That's our hope, and, and that's what the data suggests. You know, we started this project to try to put into the hands of, of every person some key insights and strategies that they could use for um, shifting the habit of assuming or predicting or anticipating what's going to go wrong uh, into a, a, a wider, more open-ended perspective that allows for more optimism and and more momentary joy in day-to-day -day life. I think sometimes we get caught up in the day-to-day -day and we don't realize that the world continues to spin and we've been having issues like this for generations. We always seem to, uh, to make our way through. What are some of those uh, key insights and, and strategies that you're talking about? So at the Greater Good Science Center here at UC Berkeley, we've been studying the role that our interpersonal relationships, our tendency towards generosity and supportiveness and kindness and compassion 
and our sense of belonging in our overall well-being is. It turns out that, you know, study after study shows that our relationships in life are the most important lever of well-being or happiness uh, as a as a general characteristic of of how we experience ourselves. So so anything that we do on a regular basis that attunes us to the way that we uh, benefit from other people's efforts and actions, the way that we connect with others in ways that enable us to coordinate our effort towards pursuing common goals, um, the the extent to which humans as a species really have this terrific potential to survive, as you alluded to earlier, and to to make progress and to adapt to the various challenges that we face over the course of our existence is is really, really important to us actually being successful in those regards. What is a successful act of joy? Would it be anything that makes you happy or uh, what would be an act of joy? Because it seems like it could be small, could be big, depends on the person. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, our opening act of joy that we let anyone try or we invite anyone to try when they come to our Big Joy program website is just listening to a track of a variety of people laughing, right? Bringing more amusement and levity and laughter into your daily life. It turns out that there are really valuable evolutionary reasons why human beings laugh that have to do with restoration, right? Feeling calm in the in the face of the various challenges and difficulties that, that may be kind of pervasive and overarching, we also need those little moments of ease and laughter. Some of the other uh, micro acts of joy, we call them micro acts because they're they're able to, you're able to accomplish them in less than seven minutes, um, uh, are writing down eight things that you feel grateful for. And this doesn't have to be, you feel grateful for some magnificent, profound uh, benefit that you've gained in your in, in your life overall, but can be something as simple as the um, the sound of raindrops pattering on a window. Like if you just take a moment to tune into that and and how kind of beautiful and grounding and humbling that can be, uh, this is an act of, or a micro act of joy or, or or one of the things that you could list in your gratitude list. Um, another example is adopting a different perspective on the challenges that you face. Oftentimes when we're in the middle of a difficulty, it feels like that's all there is and there's no other thing that matters and no other thing we can think about. But actually, if we step back, take a broader perspective, try to see the forest instead of the trees, uh, sometimes we can begin to imagine how this difficulty or this challenge might be a source of learning and growth in our lives. And uh, again, adopt that optimistic view. At some time in the future, this thing that I am managing and grappling with and figuring out how to handle is actually going to build something in me that is useful and beneficial and will and will leave me stronger in the, in the aftermath. So those are a few examples of the micro acts that we invite people to try uh, when they sign up for the Big Joy Project. Are we having a harder time now? We talked earlier. I mean, these are a lot of these are cyclical. I mean, we've lived through lots of wars, lots of conflict, lots of troubled times. Why does it seem more difficult now? Or is it? It's, it's just the newer generation feeling it. You know, it's such a good question, Scott. I, mean, I don't think that there's necessarily a, a greater magnitude of challenge or difficulty now. I think that the things that we're concerned about change over generations and I think that there's something unique about this time in that we're a little bit disappointed with the promise that I think many of us um, mm. uh, kind of thought was was coming, which is yeah. if you just work hard, if you just make a lot of money, if you just get that vacation house, if you just marry that attractive spouse and have those two, three, whatever your desired number of children are. If you just do these things, you're going to be happy. And it turns out that that doesn't work, right? We we can't, we don't get to happy by checking off a list of goals and accomplishments. Being a happy person actually takes work and it involves 
investing in our relationships, forming strong, mutually supportive and benevolent uh, social bonds with people. It involves having skills that help us manage adversity and difficulty and challenge so that we perceive those experiences as sources of learning and growth. And it involves purposefully weaving moments or, or contexts or situations that lead to those positive emotional experiences into our daily lives. So I described laughter and amusement, but it could also be an, an, uh, an enabling an opportunity for, for curiosity, for interest, uh, for the experience of, 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 of awe, right? Being in the presence of something that really challenges your everyday assumptions and expectations, being in the presence of something extraordinary and magnificent. Those kinds of positive emotions really matter, but sometimes we just don't give ourselves the space and the situations to experience them uh, often enough. Emily Anna Simon Thomas with us, PhD Science Director of the Greater Good Science Center, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, small acts of uh, of happy, uh, small acts of joy increase your happiness. Yes, it can. Fascinating discussion. We'd love to chat again. Be well. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Appreciate it, and uh, welcome aboard. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We were uh, talking the other day. I shouldn't be laughing. There's nothing funny about this, especially if you were sitting next to it. That meaning the Alaskan Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 uh, and at about 16,000 feet coming out of Oregon, I believe it was, um, a door blew off the side of the plane. And because it was at 16,000 feet and not higher up, um, uh, obviously, uh, people survived this. And thank goodness there were no uh, injuries. However, stuff went flying and sucked out of the plane, including a shirt right off a boy's back, if that isn't scary enough. Uh, And then as we were looking for the door and pieces of the plane, someone found an iPhone that evidently blew out of that plane and made it all the way down to the ground. And yes, it was still working. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be with you, Scott. And I'm looking at my own iPhone. Glad it hasn't dropped out of a, a plane recently. Well, it's still in decent shape. A lot of people, a lot of people drop it off a desk and boom, <laughs> that's it. It's done. So how does it make it 16,000 feet? That's one hell of an otter box. I mean, there's a commercial here for some company. Oh, I think so. I was looking at the tweet that the guy who found it uh, shared. His name is Sean Bates. He lives in a suburb of Portland, and it looks like he found it on uh, kind of an arterial road in the ditch next to it. There seems to be a lot of greenery growing there, and I suspect that it might have landed in some of those bushes. Maybe there's some tree canopy just outside of frame, um, which broke its fall. And if you look at the phone, uh, no scratches on it. It's a little bit wet Still has half a charge after sitting uh, in the weeds for a couple of days. Uh, It has a case. Not quite sure what kind of case it is, but it looks like a pretty reasonable one. And it has a screen protector. So if ever, you're right, that there was an ad for getting a really good case. And if if, uh, if ad manufacturers want to up their marketing at this point, I think now they have their, their golden opportunity. This is uh, a remarkable story of survival. And I, I'm not sure it would have had the same ending if there hadn't been a good case and screen protector on it. And just to show you the force that this have, would have exited the plane, I understand there was a charger, part of a charger cord still in it. So it literally yanked the char- charger cord in like out. Yeah, uh, yanked the charger cord out, you know, obviously uh, sheared the cable off, uh, left the plug in the port on the phone, and then it fell over 16,000 feet to the ground and stayed in. Um, So, you know, anytime a plane depressurizes, thank goodness it was only 16,000 feet, because if it had been higher, that explosive decompression would have been that much more significant. Uh, The odds were certainly with the passengers. Uh, There were only seven open seats on that plane, uh, and two of them happened to be right next. Next to where that faulty door plug let go. So, oh, uh, I, yeah. I, you know, someone was looking at this plane on that day. And if, uh, if, if a couple of iPhones are the only casualties, I think we can call it a success. Hey, I wonder, Carmi, if just having half of a cord plugged into it, because that would change the tra- trajectory of it going down, if that cl- created enough of a whirling motion that it sort of slowed it down in some way or, or stopped it from hitting on edge. 
quite possibly. Um, you know, and you know, it, little factors make a really big difference, and certainly yeah. anything sticking out of it would uh, certainly add to the the resistance that it would pose to the airflow. Uh, it might have gone into a bit of a flat spin, uh, which would have certainly helped mm-hmm. would slow it down, as opposed to it being kind of edge on, which it would have accelerated even more higher terminal velocity. Uh, and certainly the landscape played a role. You know, just looking at what I can discern from the tweet that was shared by the individual who found it, it was a bit of a wooded area so conceivably that also would have uh, yeah. cushioned it somewhat when it finally got close to the ground but you, you put all those factors together uh, and whoever owns that phone clearly seated near uh where the accident happened uh lucky to survive lucky you don't have to go go buy a new phone will you will they get it back do you think will it be returned to them in some way I would think so. It's interesting. I was watching the Twitter exchange. The chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Homendy, sent him a thank you saying, uh, thank you for helping us. I'd love to to thank you in person. I will reach out today. So uh, he's got some pretty big fans in the NTSB. And I I imagine they'll probably include the phone in their uh, investigation. There's probably some uh, ballistics tests that they'll want to do on it, sort of understand the trajectory. Uh, Knowing where it landed now, that can help them understand exactly where it happened in the sky. Um, Mm -hmm. So investigators are are probably uh, uh, going through it now. Um, But I guess when they're done with it, uh, presumably it will go back to the owner. uh, And presumably this guy is going to have all the NTSB merch that he can handle for the rest of his life. Imagine if the video was going all the way down. <laughs> there would be something to see. This is, you know, it's funny. Who knows what he was doing with his device beforehand, but uh, presumably, yeah. or either recording video, recording audio, or I'd love to see the fitness statistics on that because the sensors yeah. as they went down might have been recording it <laughs> as many, well. How many stairs did you climb today? <laughs> he certainly closed his rings on that day, I think. Yeah, he's good for the next year or so. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Uh, so, uh, and also uh, before we get, uh, before we leave, there's a security's an issue because um, I guess it was open and the guy could tell because he saw the boarding pass on the phone. There was no screen lock on the phone. Uh, and it'd been sitting there for two days. So clearly it's not like he said it for 15 minutes, and then it automatically activated yeah. after the accident was complete. So this is a reminder. And granted, the guy who found it seems like a super righteous guy. Obviously, he yeah. got it back to its where it needed to go. He tweeted it publicly. He helped the government investigators, all that good stuff. Uh, but I think this is a reminder that we need to you know, go into your settings, turn the auto lock on. And, and I know it's annoying because you're using your phone and after a few minutes, it automatically locks. Um, but, you know, this is an example when you're out in public and if you lose physical access to your device, having it open like that to just anyone who comes along, uh, even if they're not someone who would have stolen it, even if it falls into the wrong hands, uh, happenstance, you still don't want that to happen. Your entire digital life is happening on your phone. Turn auto lock on. You can set it to a longer interval, 15 minutes perhaps, so that it's not constantly annoying you. But if it does get left in a, in a bus stop or something, uh, at least you're covered there. This should be our reminder for that as well. Even at 16,000 feet. It's, Carmi, it's like an old Timex walks, uh, watch commercial. It takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Uh, Carmi one, of my, Levy, one of my favorite marketing terms. There you go. Time. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Thanks as always, Carmi. Have a good one. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. We look into the demonstrations taking place across Ontario, Canada, many cities around the world, largely from pro-Palestinian groups. Uh, this is not about Israeli-Palestinian uh, relations or the fighting in Gaza, but what is going on here in Canada and how law enforcement and government responds to these actions. Of course, over the last several weeks, we've seen protests where uh, events get uh, cancelled or derailed, um, traffic gets stopped, intersections, main roads, that sort of thing. Thing. neighborhoods uh, vandalized and, and marches through them, shopping malls, uh, people harassed, and even threats to the face of police officers, which basically doesn't render really any response. And yet today we're seeing video footage of a reporter asking Christia Freeland questions, perhaps in an aggressive way, but then is unjustly detained, arrested, only to be released later and not charged. It, again, that's one issue. This is another. But there is an incredible imbalance here. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Uh, Happy New Year to you. 
Happy New Year to you and to the listeners. And uh, yeah, always an interesting world that we live in, isn't it? And is it ever now? Your thoughts of, of what we're seeing uh, again, you know, I think what people are questioning here and how there's a contrast depending upon what the situation is. How do you balance this? Well, so, you know, there's this old saying that the test for democracy comes at the margins, right? So mm-hmm. people who agree and where there's a broad consensus in the center, um, those are not ultimately the people who challenge the status quo. And a lot of the elements that we, you know, today might describe as as radical or extremist, you know, think back 100 years. Uh, mm. Women who were militating for the franchise, uh, they were considered radicals and extremists in their day. Uh, so it's it's ultimately, you know, the opinions sort of shift over time and uh, and people ultimately need to challenge those opinions. And those challenges often come from the margins. I think, but also in Canada, we live in a particularly challenging situation because on the one hand, uh, we have beside us a country that has a rather 17th century unfettered idea of freedom of expression, where anything goes, regardless of how offensive, how hateful, um, and how fundamentally corrosive it might be to democratic institutions or to the social fabric, where all other democracies, advanced democracies, have a conception that comes out of the Second World War and out of the Holocaust, that they're just simply some forms of expression that are so corrosive to society that they are simply unacceptable. And I think what we see here is a testing of that middle ground on the one hand between people who believe that uh, they should be able to express themselves however they choose and whatever they wish to say, and the boundaries that we have set both to safeguard our democratic institutions and our social fabric, because we know that when people cross those boundaries, it can have horrific consequences for minority groups. Has a lack of leadership here uh, pushed this onto the police, put them in a precarious situation, having to deal with it without any sort of guidance leadership? I actually think the police are put in an absolutely impossible situation. And much of that is, I think, the doing of our politicians. So let me explain this. That ultimately, uh, police, so those are what's known as peace officers. So their first and foremost concern isn't going to be arresting people. They're first and give, especially given the resources that police have, which are extremely constrained. And when you have a demonstration, even of just a small demonstration that could get out of hand, you need an extraordinary amount of resources to contain that. And those are often not available, especially when these are spontaneous sort of demonstrations that just pop up. And so the police on site will essentially try to keep the peace. This is also what we saw with the Ottawa convoy that took yep. a lot of Canadians by surprise, where ultimately there just simply weren't enough resources. So the priority was simply to try to make sure to try to contain this and not let it get out of hand. I think at the same time, what we've seen is politicians deliberately capitalizing on polarization and wedge issues, where they, for electoral reasons, cater to particular types of groups. On the one hand, uh, dog whistling to their to the idiosyncrasies of certain electoral groups. Think about of some members of parliament even showing up with uh, at 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 events uh, that effectively sympathize with extremist views that would be considered um, um, completely objectionable or illegal or criminal in other countries. Um, and at the same time, politicians being reticent to call out uh, certain types of behavior because it might hurt their electoral chances in the next election. And so ultimately, law enforcement ends up being uh, put in the middle of having to pick up the pieces. Uh, for me, this is not about uh, Palestinians versus Israelis. It's not about one religion versus another. It's not about left versus right. It's about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terror. Are Canadians making that connection? So, uh, um, I, I guess much of this is always in the eyes of the uh, um, of the beholder. I think um, when we uh, when we talk about the challenges that different groups bring, in particular with regards to this conflict, we're forgetting some fundamental red lines that we've drawn in a democracy. That any form of expression of hate against any one identifiable group, regardless of what their standing might be in society, is not acceptable. It's not acceptable on personal and human rights grounds, but it's also mm-hmm. not acceptable because, of course, 
we we have hate speech provisions precisely because we know uh, the incredible humanitarian calamity that hate against identifiable groups uh, can breed um, in any one state, and that we've accepted that this is simply unacceptable. And so I think one of the things that politicians have not done is make it clear that forms of expression that run counter to the rule of law and counter to our constitutional framework will simply not be tolerated in this country. Um, so I think the, here's an opportunity to be uh, to be much more explicit, uh, because ultimately I think the challenge is uh, you know we live in a highly diverse world and Canada is a highly diverse country and many of the people who make Canada their home come here because they come from regions uh, that are um, economically, socially, politically extremely dangerous. And so why people of course have long. Uh, for 150 years at least, brought their conflicts with them. Think back to the founding of this country and the conflicts between English and French, between uh, Protestants and Catholics. Mm. Um, what we've done in this country is to make sure that we help groups to reconcile with one another uh, in terms of how we get along. Uh, and I think politicians have not done the job that they have done in the past in terms of trying to play peacemakers rather than polarizers and dividers. Looking for votes, not peace. Christian Leprec with us, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for this really interesting conversation. Take care, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Under the Canada Emergency Business uh, Business Account Program, also known as SEBA, the government guaranteed up to $60,000 in loans to eligible businesses during the pandemic, with $20,000 of that amount forgivable if the rest of the loan was paid off on time. To talk more about all of this, Greg Dunnett, President and CEO of Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, as well, Greg. So, obviously, January 18th is the deadline for uh, these loans to be repaid. What are you hearing from uh, members of the Chamber of Commerce? Yeah, I think um, so. It's, it's an interesting uh, time for all small businesses coming into the new year. And um, I know when it comes to the the recalling of the loan, I think, you know, we're definitely hearing that, you know, it's going to it's going to have some impacts on our business community as a whole, especially those small businesses that were really impacted by the pandemic and, and still haven't fully recovered, um, whether that is because of the inflation, whether it's rising staffing costs, labor shortages. I mean, even the declines in employee mental health. I mean, there there's a lot of things that have been impacting small business owners. So when you layer in the fact that now you're going to have to be paying interest on, on a loan, um, you, you've had um you've just had this negative impact this you know another layering on of difficulties i think the canadian chamber did a a, a big the canadian survey on business conditions uh in the fourth quarter of 2023 and i think sky is specific to certain areas right it is those tourism organizations the restaurants the people who had shut down there are other organizations that have been able to recoup and repay so um but you're still looking at about 24% of businesses that borrowed don't have a structured plan to repay, which I think in any community, if 24% of your businesses are being impacted, it's going to have a ripple effect through your community. In your mind or from what you're hearing, was this a fair deal? Is it a fair deal? Uh, should it be extended? Should it be extended for certain um, industries? Yeah, so I can say that we definitely went forth with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and and other industry associations and did push for this to be pushed back because again for all those reasons just covered it's the business community has been impacted and they they need those supports and i think you know where if i go into a specific example around an industry think of think of a restaurant owner who has seen all those impacts. And now, you know, I'll, I'll look at myself. We did a renovation on our house. And so, you know, we've got a little bit more of a debt load in our family. And so with the rising interest rates, we're like, oh man, maybe we should stay in on Friday night instead of going out for dinner. So now yeah. you've got this dual impact of 
people being a little a double edged sword of people not being able to or going out and spending quite as much along with the fact that the interest rates are there. So I I think that the government did have multiple extensions. I think, you know, we're always supportive of them doing more because every community is going to suffer if the small business community suffers. It truly is the lifeblood of every community. And it it has those, again, unintended ripple effects. So again, the most likely businesses to give back to our community to support the, the, the rep softball team or to yeah. donate to a charity are often the small businesses in our community. So it's going to have these ripple effects that are going to be negatively impacted if, if the businesses don't have those uh, funds that they can use to support our community. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Greg, what to those that say, well, you know, if they haven't recovered now, they're probably not going to recover. Will they ever recover? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, well, listen, Every small business owner, Scott, in the face of adversity, they are the ones who always are the most resilient and most adaptable. Um, I don't think any of us believed the pandemic was, again, was going to happen and definitely didn't understand the intended consequences of not just during it, but coming yeah. through it. So I I think that, that that would be unfair. I think almost all of us had life changes in our lives due to the pandemic. and. If, you know, like, again, if if we made financial decisions in that moment and it was clearly impacted by the pandemic, I just don't see that as uh, a fair view. I would say that the business community is going to continue to need our support. You know, it's one of the reasons why we at the Chamber run Hamilton Day and 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 try and push that message of supporting local is so important all year long. But again, I think it's very important to note that those impacts if we start to lose the small businesses are going to have a multitude of effects on our on the enjoyment and livability of our community and again so great sorry i was gonna say here in hamilton you know the the culinary scene has been one of the key parts of our downtown's revitalization Mm -hmm. and it is really one of the kind of highlights of whether you live here or you come to visit here the the amazing food you get to eat everywhere so what are you expecting, Greg, come January 18th? Um, uh, things to continue status quo, some will fall, some will, some will fail, some will succeed, or are you expecting uh, a shoe to drop here, something larger? No, I, I think it's, it's important to note that it's not, the whole loan is not due on the 18th. It just yeah. flips to where you have you start to pay. paying interest. So, so I don't think it's going to be uh epidemic on, on January 18th, January 19th, but we'll see that slow, slow impact as a, as those, those payments start to impact the ability for the business to go forward. So let me ask you this, Greg, are you seeing as much new interest coming in or uh, as you are seeing that's, that's dropping off or is there just the same interest? You talked about the culinary scene. People want to come here, make rest, uh, build restaurants, such, um, are, are you still seeing that, that, that interest? Yeah, I mean, I I think from a you know if you look at the city as a whole, you know, uh, city hall and economic development announced the largest number of uh, permit building permits were launched in 2023. So I think there's a lot of growth still in our community. Um, what I would say, and I can say on behalf of the chamber, we had one of our best years in terms of new membership in 2023 that we have had in the last decade. So there's, I think there's still excitement in our community. I think that there's still a want to grow and and do business in the community because we are positioned for great success. And again, we're seeing, we've got a lot of projects coming that are going to help augment that. It's just making sure that at a municipal, provincial and federal level, we've, we're making those support, we're providing those supports to help people through these transitions so that they're still there when we've got an LRT running a brand new entertainment district and a fully, you know, just a downtown that is thriving. And and so that's kind of the, the balance that we need to find. Greg Dunnett with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, talking about businesses uh, and facing a pandemic loan payback deadline. Greg, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. We'll talk soon. The Freeland, how come the IRDC is not a terrorist group? Why is your government supporting Islamo Police 
You're under arrest. How am I under arrest? You bumped into me. You pushed into me. You bumped. I was just scrubbing with you. I've got my credentials here, and you just bumped into me. So excuse Police, me. you're under arrest. What is your name in your bag? What is your name in your bag? Why am I under arrest? He, 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 he brought my way. And apparently, according to Joe Warmington from The Sun, what happened after that is uh, the reporter was put into the car, handcuffed, taken around the corner, and then released with no charges laid. Uh, a bizarre scenario uh, with this person who is very aggressive and uh, has known to be that with the rebel. And that being said, they weren't doing they weren't doing anything wrong. They asked a a, a politician a question as they were walking. Uh, then a security person sort of set a pick on the reporter, and when he brushed up against him, he was immediately arrested. Uh, maybe this wouldn't concern people so much if we didn't see protests going on uh, in regard to the Hamas. Israeli war that are blocked streets, blocked intersections, uh, stopped events, shopping malls, uh, harassment of people, shoppers, even threatening a police officer right to their face on camera doesn't get them arrested. However, when you're trying to ask Christia Freeland a question in an uncomfortable position, that gets you cuffed and thrown into the back of a cop car. Scott Radley's with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, you've been doing this a while. What are your thoughts? It's a bad look for a whole lot of reasons, Scott. Uh, it is. And let, let's go through them. You, you touched on the first one, which I think is the most obvious, which is we've seen so many protests where so many things have been said and not everybody is breaking the law, but there's stuff that happens. You cited the one of the person who threatened the cop or whoever that he was going to put you six feet under and that leads to nothing. That's one, uh, uh, the timing of this with all that stuff going on, the timing is not a good look for police and police in general. This apparently was RCMP. The second problem with this is that you have the person who, this person, and you don't have to like the media person, you don't have to like their outlet, but he was asking Christian Freeland a question. It looks terrible on the police for doing this because he didn't, that I could see, I've watched the video two or three or four or 10 times. He didn't touch her. He didn't make any attempt to touch the officer that I could see. No. Um, and it also looks terrible, quite frankly, on Christian Freeland. And, and I know that some people say, well, you, what do you mean? She was just walking there. She's a former journalist. Yeah. At the very least today, she has had 24 hours now to put something out on Twitter, say something to the effect of, look, this was a misunderstanding. I'm happy to answer questions. I'm always willing to be interviewed by people. Like you don't even have to, and some people have said, Rebel News is not a legitimate news organization. The government has, the federal government has tried to say in the past that they don't believe they're legitimate. Does that mean, Scott, that if you happen to be walking on the street as a Canadian citizen and saw Christian Freeland or Justin Trudeau coming towards you, does that mean you are not allowed to ask them a question as a citizen? Forget, doesn't matter to me really whether this guy was a journalist or says he's a journalist or is a journalist, whatever. If you have Christian Freeland walking towards you on the sidewalk, surely as a citizen of this country, you are permitted to walk alongside her and ask her a question. And so I just, th this whole thing, it looks bad on police. It looks bad on her. It looks bad on, it's just a bad look all over the place. And the thing is with the lack of leadership here, whether it's the prime minister, the premier, the police chief, the mayors, anybody, it's putting police in precarious situations where they have to be judge and jury here because nobody's weighing in because every politician's looking from votes from both sides of this issue. Well, I mean, okay, you mentioned, you mentioned mayors. One of the most ludicrous things that came up, um, the other day was, uh, Olivia Chow in Toronto has yeah. the mayor's skate in Toronto in yeah. Ethan Phillips yes. Square. Yep. And so, uh, that was hijacked basically by protesters yep. and they had to shut the thing down. They were screaming at elderly people and everything, Palestinian protesters. Yes. And then she posts on her official Twitter hours later, some good fun at today's new year's levy and skating party. Looking forward to a great year ahead. 
like I, they don't even want to speak to her. She tried to speak with them and and whatever, and she said that in the clip. They don't want to talk to me. But yet, it's you know, but it really is, Scott. Yeah. I don't want to overstate this, but sometimes there are days when I do think George Orwell was on to something here because they are <laughs> they are telling. Sometimes we are being told things that we categorically know. We saw what happened. And now you're telling us some di- completely different story that yeah. has no bearing and no resemblance to the truth. I know. And we're supposed to say, oh, the emperor has no, cl- I mean, the emperor, your love, I love your clothes, emperor. Like we're not supposed, we're supposed to ignore that the emperor has no clothes. It is baffling to me some of the stuff that is going on and that seemingly, seemingly some politicians of all stripes and other people seem to think, well, we're just going to say, oh, well, I must not have seen that right. Or must have doubt yeah, yourself. I, I don't yeah. know, Scott. I don't, I don't, I don't understand some of the stuff that is honestly happening and not everything. Like the whole world is not doing no. this, but it, there's some, we'll survive. Stu- there's some stuff that I just go, what is going on? What is going on? It's broken. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Got a neat discussion going on about campers and homeless. I want to get on that one with you because I think this might be actually a solution, Scott. Because at every Walmart parking lot in the United States at midnight, every camper shows up and stays for free overnight. So they show up and shop in the morning. Hey, Why what happens can't we at do that race? here? What happens at NASCAR races or at Buffalo Bills games? Yep. You know, bingo, bingo. It's interesting. Why can't we do it? Why can't we do it and run it like a campsite? It's certainly better than sleeping in tents. Mm, All right. All right. uh, More after uh, on all of this coming up after six o'clock. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900 CHML.com.